think that that is uh, the result of what happens when we're gathered together. When we gather together and sing songs of praise, that the result would be that we would be in awe of Him. That, that the result of my reading the Word of God and preaching it would be that we would stand in awe of Him. And so, we're going to go ahead and uh, take a look this morning at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We have been walking through this book of Ecclesiastes. We've picked up the pace a little bit lately. We're just going to go through a chapter a week until we get to the last chapter. Today we're going to be in chapter 5. We're going to do the whole thing in the front of the bulletin. We just put verses 1 to 7. We're just going to keep on going and do the whole chapter today. Um, And so what's been going on, if you're just joining us today in the book of Ecclesiastes, is that the author of this book who calls himself the preacher or teacher has been reflecting on life. Specifically, he calls it over and over again, the phrase that gets repeated in the book is life under the sun. And last week we were in chapter 4 and we saw the preacher really struggle to understand how people were supposed to make it in this world that is so filled with evil and temptations and challenges on every side. So we went through Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this week, and this week we're going to get to chapter 5. And you'll notice a little bit of a shift. It's going to become really obvious by the time we get to chapter 7. But you'll notice it a little bit today, that so far most of what's been going on in Ecclesiastes is this kind of reflection on life, and most of the time the conclusion being meaningless, meaningless, or vanity, vanity, right? And he's reflecting a lot, but now it starts to shift a little bit today and way more in chapter 7 that it's going to sound a lot more like the book of Proverbs, that it is this person looking at life and speaking to people and saying, listen, I've got some wisdom I need to share, some advice, if you will, about what you need to do as you look at life here and live life here under the sun. Today, there's going to be lots of reflection still, but also some words of wisdom for us to hear. We're going to reflect on a couple main things. So two things today. One is our approach to God, and second, how we see money. And those two are actually pretty related to each other. That's what he's going to address here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. In the end, we're going to turn to Luke's gospel to get some perspective from Jesus on this side of the cross and the resurrection as well. So that's where we're going today. There's an outline in your bulletin that might be helpful for you to follow along. I encourage you, I tried to keep the application guide simple. Maybe just two questions for you to wrestle with on your own during the week. If you're married with your spouse, a couple of questions, or or just with a friend. Um, and if you're a parent, some, some questions, a couple questions to ask your kids as well. So hopefully it's not just we hear the word and that's it, but we do something and let God do something with it in our hearts throughout the week. If you have a Bible with you, you can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And if you're able to, you can go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the Word of God. That's why we stand. It is God's Word that I'm reading, and so uh, we stand because of that. I'm going to pray first, and then we'll read from Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Father, I pray. That right now during this time, even as I read your word and then as I preach your word, that the result of all of it would be that you would stir up in our hearts whatever maybe is there. We know that we're all created as worshipers, that we desire to worship and give ultimate worth and ascribe great worth and, and, and value 
And we, and we all treasure something. God, I pray that the result of reading your word now and then preaching it, the work of your heart, the, the work of your spirit in our hearts would result in us standing in awe of you. That we would recognize your greatness and spend the rest of our lives worshiping you. I, I can't make that happen no matter how much I've prepared these words. Um, that's going to have to be a work of your spirit in my heart and in my lips and in the hearts of the people here. So I pray that you would be pleased to do that now. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 5. This is the word of God. Here's what it says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. And God is, but God is the one that you must fear. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he, as he came from his mother's womb... He shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so also shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You can be seated. So Ecclesiastes chapter 5, first point is this. There's four points today. You'll see that in the outline in your bulletin. First step is this. Watch. First point is this. Watch your step. Approach God in reverent fear. Now I just read the whole chapter. I'm not going to read each of these first seven verses again, but I do want to highlight a couple of things for us. I want us to note what it says about how we approach God. 
In verse 1, it begins with these words, Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. Now remember, this is written in the Old Testament. This is written before Jesus comes as the fulfillment of much of God's promises, right? And so the house of God was literally a a place, a temple, to, to where people would go, and he was telling them, Guard your steps. He's not literally talking about where they're walking, but he's talking about, think about how you're approaching the house of God, this place where God is worshipped and where God is present. Now, of course, in the New Testament, that that idea of the house of God, that's never used to refer to a building. So we're not sitting in the house of God right now. The people of God are called the house of God. God comes to dwell in his people in the New Testament, right? So a little bit different now that we're on this side of the cross and resurrection, but the idea is the same. Be careful how you approach God. And so one of the ways in which we're called to approach God is this. Stop talking so much. Did you get that as I was reading this? Over and over. Did you see all the words about how much we talk and warnings against that? This is hard for some people like me. Um, Right, who like to talk a lot. Maybe you live with somebody like that. But look at all that it says here in these first opening verses. To listen is better. Be not rash with your mouth. Don't be hasty to utter a word before God. Let your words be few. A fool's voice has many words. You get this? Hey, there's more. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Why should God be angry at your voice? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. So you see it over and over again. One of our problems is we talk a lot and we don't listen very much, right? And as we come before God, there is this sense in which we ought to do it sometimes in silence, being quiet for a bit, thinking of application for us, just thinking about the fact that that, that sometimes we want to hear the voice of God. We know that we have that in the Scriptures, right? God has spoken in His Word, and so... How often this week have you stopped all that you're doing and just opened up your Bible and listened to God? Have you done that much this week? I mean, you're busy, right? You've got lots of stuff going on. There's always people to talk to. There's always news to catch up on. There's always work to be done. Stop. Stop all that for a bit. Stop all your talking and listening to other people talk and hear from God. Open up your Bible, set down your phone, and listen to the sermon. For uh, I, I didn't, I didn't like catch anybody, by the way. Um, and may I know you're probably looking at the Bible on your phone right now. But you get the idea. Like, there's always something that's just kind of like going on in our mind, and it, sometimes we just need to stop and be quiet, to be still, and know that He is God. We don't do that often enough in our day. Why, do we, why are we supposed to do this? Why stop talking so much? Why is that such a big deal? Why, why do we have to watch how we approach God? Well, listen to what he says here. It was in verse 2 where he says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Listen, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Right? He's just putting us in our place. One of the reasons we approach God with this reverent fear, we need to be careful how we approach God, is we need to recognize He is God in heaven and we are on earth. 
right? That we need to know our place. Have you ever been in a place when a famous person walks in? It's almost like some of the air is taken out of the room. Everybody just is quiet all of a sudden, and all eyes go to that person, right? Or maybe maybe it's a room where there are some soldiers gathered together, and they are at ease. And a commanding officer comes in the room, and all of a sudden, these soldiers who were calm and at ease are now standing still and at attention before somebody who ranks in authority over them. This is the kind of approach he's calling us to. Listen, you need to know your place. God is in heaven. You are on earth. He is sovereign over all things. Therefore, we must think about how we approach him, and we ought to approach God in reverent fear. He says a little bit more at the end of this section, verse 7, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. God is the one you must fear. A fear fear of God, by the way, is an attitude of the heart that acknowledges us and who we are and acknowledges God and who He is and sees the distinction between the two, that we worship a God who is holy. The God who spoke all of creation into existence. That's the God that we're talking about approaching, right? The God who spoke all of creation into existence. The God by whom, through whom, and for whom all things exist and in whom all things hold together. The God who is not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. That's the God that we're talking about. And so we need to have that perspective as we come before God. Fearing Him means standing in awe of who He is. Standing in reverence, even trembling at His presence. And so there's a lot of words that we might use to describe worship, and casual is not one of them. We do not come before the God who is holy, holy, holy in a casual sense. Come before Him with reverence. And so it might look something like, remember when the prophet Isaiah got just a little glimpse of God's glory in Isaiah chapter 6. He heard the seraphim calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. I can't imagine what it felt like in that moment, but here was His response. You remember what it was? Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, God Almighty. Right? That's, that's the kind of reverent fear that we're talking about here. We need to know who it is that we're worshiping, who it is that we're approaching. So we need to ask ourselves, do you approach God in humble, reverent fear? Ask yourself that. As you open up the Bible to read it, are you recognizing what, what you're doing, that you are reading the Word of God? This is the Word of God, and we get to read it. You're recognizing what we're doing. When we gather together to worship, when we're singing songs, I know there's a lot going on all around you, but is your heart engaged in just being in awe of the God to whom we're singing? Or is there a little bit of you that's kind of evaluating the musical selection and those leading us in worship? When we, when we gather together for worship, and, and I remind us, because we do it every week, and it becomes kind of humdrum that we stand as God's Word is read, remembering it's because we're reading the Word of God. He has spoken, and it's written down, it's recorded for us in His Word, and we get to read it. 
think it's right for us to come before God in reverence and awe when we pray. How do you approach God in prayer? Casually, or are you recognizing who you're talking to when you're praying? How do you address God? When we take communion, you're recognizing what it is that the, that the, the bread and the cup symbolize. When we interact with others, are we coming before others recognizing that this is a person, whoever it is, however annoyed we might be, when we're talking about somebody, maybe somebody that we've heard about we don't even know, like that we recognize that person was made in the image of God. Right? That when a thunderstorm hits, rather than complaining because your your plans just got ruined, that we would hear that rain pouring down and hear that thunder roaring and stand in reverent awe of the God who is sovereign over all of it. Right? I think we would benefit church, church. I I know I would benefit, and I know I have benefited, and I think we would benefit if we would more regularly stand in awe of the God who is holy. Hopefully that's part of what happens as we gather together. Now, some of you uh, recognizing maybe that that you don't worship God. Um, you don't worship God. It, like It's hard for you to even think about doing this because because you don't, you don't worship God. You don't recognize God for who He is. So coming before Him in reverent fear sounds like a foreign concept to you. Let you know that it, that, that it is possible. So, so first of all, surely there is a God who has made all things and He is holy. Everything He does is good and right. He is sovereign over all things. And yet you can have access to Him. Not on your own, but through what Jesus has done. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have access. We can come. We can approach this holy God, holy as He is, unholy as we are. We can approach Him. We can be in His presence. But it's all because of what Christ has done. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. We'll look at... Uh, the last few points. Now, I spent a lot of time on that first one on purpose because I think everything else flows out of that. But it does change everything. When we recognize God for who He is and ourselves for who we are, that changes how we see lots of things. Very specifically in this passage, it changes how we see money. One thing we find, and we see this in verses 8 through 12, is that money isn't the answer, and often it's a problem. You see that in verses 8 through 12. Again, not going to read each of them Again, but in verses 8 and 9, he talks about the fact that there is much oppression and there is violation of justice and righteousness. And often, the people that are doing the oppressing are people who have become wealthy and use their wealth as a way to gain power and use their power as a way to gain, to, to oppress others. Happens all the time, all around us, right? And so money is not the answer to all of our problems or all of the world's problems. In fact, it's often a part of the problem, it seems. Now, verse 9, um, there's a lot of people trying to figure out what that means, uh, how that fits in with all this other stuff. Uh, I read one thing, this guy says this, another guy says this. Uh, I don't know. Um, but the next verses are much more clear. Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. 
this also is vanity. That's true, right? We know that. He who is, loves money will never be satisfied with money. And he who is wealthy will never be satisfied with his income. We could always use a little bit more. Maybe you've heard uh, when John Rockefeller, who was you know, one of the richest men in the world, was asked, somebody asked him one time, how much money is enough? And you remember what his answer was? Just a little bit more. Right? How much is enough? Just a little bit more. And we think, oh, that's silly because he was so filthy rich. And you know what? So are we. But we have the same attitude, don't we? How much would be enough? Well, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more would sure be great. But it's quite clear that money will not be, we who love money will not be satisfied with money. More true stuff in verses 11 and 12. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Sorry, verses 11 and 12 say this. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. It's like, yeah, you might make more, and then there's just more ways to spend it. We know how that works, right? And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Look, now I have stuff. Great. Still not happy. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But listen, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Right? You ever had that problem? I had that problem on Friday. Um, uh, we, we decided it had been a kind of a stressful couple weeks, and we had Friday evening with nothing to do. So after school, we took off, and we went down to Ames and ate at Texas Roadhouse. You ever eaten at that place? So we get there, and there's, there's peanuts there. So we just kind of, we were going at it as fast as we can open those things. We're eating those. There was already two baskets of that, and they call it bread, but it's almost like a donut, kind of, without frosting. And then there's cinnamon butter stuff. Two baskets already sitting on the table. And so we're eating those. Before we're even done with the second one, a third one comes. We didn't ask for it. They just keep bringing the stuff. And then we had, like, our actual meal, and I'm just stuffed. Like, I don't even feel good. Like, it felt good, I thought, but then I didn't feel good. And then we come home, and I'm still just stuffed. Like, we came home, I'm still stuffed. We get the kids to bed. We had put the extra bread in the take-home box. I had one more. Like, I wasn't like, oh, that doesn't even sound good, but it sure looks good. So I had another one. I didn't sleep very well on Friday night. So he's just saying a true thing, right? Because the full stomach of the rich won't even let him sleep. We have so much. We're rich. But we're still not satisfied. So guess what? A little bit more is not going to satisfy us. In fact, it might make us a little more uncomfortable. I love the book of Ecclesiastes. You just point stuff out like this. It's just, well, yeah. Should have. I did. I, I had I'd written a sermon the day before that, right? Um, should have thought about that and not eaten the last piece of bread. And then he looks at this. This is a good point, too. Verses 13 to 17, we work hard for money that doesn't last. All right? We work hard for money that doesn't last. Look at verses 13 and 14. Here's the heading I put on that. You could lose your money before you die. He notices that. He talks about a man who whose riches were lost in a bad venture. Maybe you've had a bad venture and you've lost some riches in the process, right? An investment that just didn't go very well. The economy crashes, you lost your job, your investment tanks, but there's a good chance you're going to lose some of your money that you've earned with all the toil that you've put behind it. There's a good chance you could lose a good chunk of it before you die. Like, oh great, that's encouraging, thank you. But a little more encouraging is this, you will lose all of your money when you die. 
right? He's talked about that before in the book, but it's reality. We work ourselves sick to gain stuff that we're going to lose when we die, right? He's just pointing that out, just trying to be frank. He says, you'll take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Just as he came into this world, so shall he go. Right? We're not taking anything with us. And we spend a lot of our days in darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger. So we work hard for money that doesn't last. You might ask, well, is money always a problem then? Like, is there, is there anything good to money? Well, of course there is. Yeah, for sure. Many of us here today have lots of it. The reason that I have money, the reason that our family could go out to eat is because you have worked hard at a job, somebody's paid you, and you put money in an offering plate to pay my salary, right? So so, so thank you for that. We, we all have, most of us, especially living in this country, by the standards of history and by the standards of the rest of the world, we are rich. We have much. And so how do we have a right perspective on money? I think we see that in these last few verses. These last few verses, they are surprisingly positive and hopeful in the book that has not been very positive and hopeful. He says this, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with what one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Right? Sing enjoy it. Enjoy what God has given to us. But I think we have to see it in perspective. The reason we, the way we see it in perspective, notice how he says it here. Yes, we are to find enjoyment in the stuff, the everyday stuff that God gives us. Food and drink. You've got something to eat? Praise God for it. Enjoy it. You've got something to drink? Praise God for it and enjoy it. You've got a job? Even if it's hard sometimes, praise God for it and enjoy it. You've got wealth. You've got possessions. Enjoy it, but recognize this. Did you notice in these verses? Who has given it to you? Two times. God has given. See that there? At the end of verse 18 and the beginning of verse 19? What we have, if you have wealth, if you have possessions, if you have food to eat, if you've got a job to work at, it's been given to you by God. Right? It is a good gift. And not only does He give us the good gift, did you notice what it also says there? Notice this. God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. Apart from God, it's really hard to actually enjoy the things that we work so hard to get. We could get to the end like the author of Ecclesiastes gets to and says, I'm still not happy. It feels empty, vain, meaningless. But God not only gives us the gifts, but He gives us the power to enjoy the good gifts. Praise God for that. I'm grateful that He's given us that. We need to remember this, though, that money alone cannot bring us lasting joy. But God, the God who gives us money, can give us the power to enjoy money along with all the other gifts that He gives us. Money in and of itself is not evil. The love of money is the root of all evil, though. So we must be very, very careful recognizing everything we have is a gift from God. And the only way we're going to enjoy it is if we enjoy it in proper perspective with Him as sovereign God over all of it. Does that make sense? All right. So if you have money, thank God for it. Ask Him to help you enjoy it properly. Right? That would be a good application point from this. I want to end with this, though. I want to go to Luke chapter 16. In Luke chapter 16, 
God or Jesus tells this interesting parable um, that I think would be really good for us to spend time looking at. It's just too long for us to do that. But at the end of the parable, he gives his conclusion. And so I want to just look at the conclusion. If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke's in the New Testament. The four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's the third one. Luke chapter 16, Jesus is telling a parable. And the conclusion in verses 10 to 15 is this. Jesus says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Right? So Jesus lays it out pretty clearly. And we need to ask ourselves as we look at application from this, what are we doing with what God has entrusted to us? A proper understanding of God changes the way that we see everything in life, including the way that we look at money. We recognize it as not God, but as a gift from God. We are people who generally make a good income. We're going to go back today to a nice home, probably driving a nice vehicle. You probably have a plan to take some sort of nice vacation. We're wearing nice clothing, and we're going to eat good food today. That's us. We need to ask ourselves the question, are we being faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us? I think a good question to ask, and you might want to write this down. Maybe this is a helpful question for you. It's a helpful question for me, and that is this. Are you using money in such a way that reminds yourself and displays to the world that money is not your greatest treasure, but Jesus is? That was a long question. You're like, you told me to write that down? Seriously? Are you living... In such a way that you remind yourself and display to the world that money is not your greatest treasure, but Jesus is. Or another way to say that, could people tell by looking at your life that you treasure Jesus more than you treasure money? No one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Can you serve God and have money? Can you serve God with money? Yes, but can you serve God and money? No. Right? So can people tell by looking at your life that you serve God, not money? If someone were to look at your checking account register, would they conclude that Jesus is your master and your greatest treasure? It's hard to hear sometimes. I'm sure it was really hard for the people who first heard Jesus say it because look at their reaction. Two verses, two more verses. Verses 14 and 15. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. If you love money, you don't want to hear stuff like this. 
And so they just started making fun of Jesus. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. You keep trying to show other people that you're right, that you have it all together. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God knows our hearts. He knows whether our hearts are standing before Him in reverent awe or whether we are really, in a sense, serving money. What do we revere? That's really what it comes down to. What do we revere? We live in a world that reveres money, don't we? We live in a world that reveres money. We, we love hearing about, I looked, I looked it up, and I was going to put a picture of one of the covers up on, up on but I couldn't find one that, was, that had any, everything that was totally appropriate on it. Simple thing like People Magazine. 21 million people uh, in our country, they, they claim, People Magazine claims, 21 million people are a part of its readership. That whole magazine is just aimed at helping us to get a glimpse into the lives of those that have lots of money. And here's what they do with it. Here's how they live, right? That's, that's the whole purpose, as far as I can tell, of People Magazine. Um, and so, so there, is this, there is this sense in our culture in which we revere and stand in awe of money and people that have it, right? That's what we revere and awe in our culture. But church, what if? What if we were the people who not just sang a song, but who really believed that we know the God who is holy, holy, holy? What if we revered God above all else? What if we were giving our money generously for the sake of the gospel that more and more people might know and worship this God? What if we stopped talking for a while and just sat in humble, reverent awe and fear of God because He is holy, holy, holy. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That would change the way that we see a lot of things and I think it would change the way people around us saw things. We need help with that. So as the worship team comes to prepare to help us sing a closing song, I want to pray. You can pray with me. we just confess that sometimes our hearts are calloused. We open up your word or even fail to open up your word because we, we forget that you, the holy God who spoke all things into existence, have said something. We can read it. We confess that we've become calloused and we gather together for this great privilege of worshiping you with your people and we come casually, having done nothing to prepare our hearts. We come before you in prayer, forgetting who we're talking to, but just rattling off a laundry list of our needs. God, would you reignite in us individually and in us as a church a sense of the glory and majesty that you alone possess? 
that we would more and more give our lives and give our hearts, give our minds, give our money, give our time so that you would be revered above everything else. That we would use what you've given us in such a way that we, yes, enjoy the gifts that you've given us, but but also in such a way that we display to others and remind ourselves that the stuff that you've given us is not our greatest treasure, but you, the one who is the giver of all good gifts, is. To the degree that you need to radically or maybe even just in little ways begin to change the way that we use the money that you've given to us, I pray that you would accomplish that in your people here this morning, accomplish that in my heart. And even as we sing this closing song, that we would be singing about how great our God is with the goal that all the world would begin singing that as well. That people from every tongue and tribe and nation, that people that are rich and people that are poor would gather together, caring for one another, but all together worshiping you, the God who alone deserves our worship. Would you make that happen and use us for that purpose? In Jesus' name, amen.